Sometime after Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, we read verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, verse 20. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to Sarah, chapter 21, verse 5. So that makes Abraham around 140 years old when he married Keturah, give or take a few years. The name Keturah comes from the Hebrew word Katar. George, you might want to look that up because he lives, his daughter lives in the country of Qatar. I don't know if it's spelled the same way or anything of that nature, but it means incense or a sweet-smelling aroma, and it played a vital part in Israel's worship. Um, it's not unusual to name perfumes or something of that nature. I don't Ladies wear jasmine. I think that's the name of one of the perfumes, or it was at least in my day. I'm dating myself here a little. But Exodus 30 says, put the altar, and that's referring to the altar of incense, in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on that altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Exodus 30, verses 6 through 8. And the word for that is keturah, the incense. Let's read on. Again, the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, some of these I don't know, ancha, galbanam, and pure frankincense. Ah, finally, one I know, frankincense. <laughs> All in equal amounts and make a, frequent blend, a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder, place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance for himself must be cut off from his people. That is, they'll be executed. Exodus 30, verses 34 through 38. In number 16, the sons of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram protested the authority of the Levites. By taking censers and burning this sacred incense in those censers, and all 250 were consumed with fire. And their brass censers were beaten into overlay for the altar as a reminder. Here it is, verse 40 of number 16. To remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord or he would become like Korah and his followers. And we all know what happened to them. The earth opened and swallowed them. Number 16, verse 32 and verse 33. Now, in all of these texts and many more, the word for incense is this name, Keturah. So, Keturah was a specially formulated, sweet-smelling incense reserved alone for the worship of God. 
No one was to reproduce it for his private use. It was holy. It was set aside as something especially marked for God. Oh, and one thing more. The incense, the rising perfumed smoke, represented the prayers of God's people. For example, David says, May my prayer be set before you like keturah, like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in the wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Psalm 141, verses 2 through 4. So he says, may my prayers be like keturah, like the smoke that rises off of that special altar that's inside the curtains. In the New Testament, when Zechariah the priest took his turn in officiating at the temple in the worship of God, Luke 1, verse 10, it tells us, when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So they get the symbolism there. Now this is a different word for incense, but it's the same temple, it's the same place. It's the idea of worshiping God. This is a Greek text, so it wouldn't have the Hebrew keturah. Or John describes the heavenly worship of God in Revelation 5, verse 8, saying, The twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I couldn't think of anything more definitive than that. And I said all that to say this. Abraham's second wife bore the name of the sacred perfumed incense that God would later choose to be associated only with his holiness and his worship. She became a sweet fragrance to God and a fitting wife for Abraham in his old age. Kentura is not Sarah. She's not a princess, which is what Sarah's name means. But she is a sweet fragrance before God and a far cry from Hagar, which means flight, someone that runs away from God. And Abraham remarries, but he remarries in the faith. That's what we need to take to heart. Secondly, note Abraham's potent virility. Verse 2 tells us, Keturah bore Abraham. Aren't these names? Uh, I was praying for Jared. <laughs> He's read these. these names are a mouthful. Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Count them. Six sons all total. How old is Abraham now? Well, if we assume that he's 140 when Zimron, the firstborn of Keturah, came, he dies at age 175, verse 7, so that's 35 years after the birth of Zimron. At age 100, at age 100, his procreative powers are dead. Paul tells us, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but 
was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Romans 4, 18 through 21. The writer of Hebrews words it this way, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and 12. From our text here, it is obvious that the enablement of God, the one that he did for Abraham to produce an heir through Sarah, namely Isaac, has not abated in the 13 years since Sarah's death. Chapter 23, verse 21. In other words, Abraham still possessed the procreative power to reproduce six more sons at age 140 and beyond. What was God's promise to Abraham? Let me read it for you. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, the father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. <clears throat> Excuse me, I turned too far. Made you very fruitful, and I will make nations come of you, and kings will come from you. Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6. That's what God's promise was to Abraham. So here he is, an old man, and he's still producing children. The third point in your bulletin outline, notice there that Abraham's estate was left to Isaac which, with provisions for his other children. Verse 5 and 6 reads, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Does that sound familiar? In a moment of self-assertiveness and impatience, Sarah married off Hagar, her maid, to Abraham, hoping to produce children through her. Instead of being a blessing, however, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, became a thorn in Sarah's side and threatened to obstruct and endanger Isaac's inheritance. And so Sarah pressured Abraham, saying to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Genesis 21, verse 10 and 11. So he didn't, he didn't know what to do. What was he going to do? Ishmael was his son also. Should he listen to Sarah? Or should he pull rank on her as the head of the house? Well, God stepped in with an amicable solution God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Genesis 21, verse 12 and 13. Now here we are more than 50 years later, and guess what? Abraham is still operating on the principle laid down by Sarah and confirmed by God. Namely, it is through Isaac that your offspring 
will be reckoned. Chapter 21, verse 1. So, the estate goes to Isaac, but while he is still alive, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, the Ishmael and the other six men listed in verse 2. And as with Hagar and Ishmael in the day of Sarah, so now with Keturah and her sons, Abraham sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Verse 6. And then finally, we are told in this text that Abraham himself died at age 175. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. There was at least family unity on that. They buried, them in planet, buried him in the family plat, the cave of Machpelah, where Sarah was buried that Abraham bought from the Hittites when he was in that region. Now, that's the narrative. Short, sweet, but there's a lot of truths in here. So let's look at the lessons for the soul from a life well lived. And I'm referring to Abraham's life. The first lesson I want to draw from this text is this, that death dissolves the marriage relationship and it permits remarriage in the faith. When Dee and I were in college together at John Brown University, we lived next door to a couple that were students also at the school. But the wife had cancer. And after graduation, we heard that she had succumbed to the disease. And a number of years later, we heard that the husband had remarried another Christian woman who became his soulmate. This is not that unusual. In the original creation of Eve, God had, admit, had to admit, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2 verse 18. So the first thing mentioned in scripture as not being good was the single status of Adam, living alone and with no appropriate, compatible companion. In other words, the beauty of the pristine creation, which must have been stunning. The activity of caring for Eden, his work of pruning in the garden. The companionship of the domesticated animals. And remember, there are no wild animals at this time. And like that song, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps. Well, you can sleep because the lion sleeps. All of this was totally inadequate, woefully inferior to the needs of a thinking, reasoning, feeling human being. We are more than animals. We bear the image, we bear the personality of God, and God is a gregarious being. That is to say, he walked and talked, he carried on conversation with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 8. And Dr. Doolittle may talk to the animals and they to him, but that's fiction. Adam was living in the real world and being the only human being on the scene, he was lonely, he was incomplete. And God looked at it and says, that's not good. When God created Eve and brought her to Adam, we are told, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's what the word woman means. For this reason, a man will leave his father 
He'll leave his mother. He'll be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis 2, verse 23 and following. Jesus said of this bond, So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Matthew 19, verse 6. And that being said, to discourage divorce, there is, there is one dissolution of marriage that is legitimate to all. Paul writes, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. That would apply to widowers as well as to widows. Widower like Abraham, who remarried after the death of Sarah and took Keturah, a sweet-smelling aroma to God, as his wife. What's it going to be like in glory? Well, the Pharisees pose the fictitious scenario of a woman who married a husband and then he died, and so she married another guy and he died. And this happened seven times over, one after the other. And their question to Jesus was, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? Here's Jesus' answer. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. See, the idea is that death dissolves the relationship. But when we get to glory, there's no marrying or giving in marriage, and we'll never die. So you put, put it all together. He goes on, For they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Luke 20, verse 34 through 36. John shows us in the Revelation that not only are we God's children, but we are the bride of Christ. We read about it this morning. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright, clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Revelation 19, verses 7. Let me put it this way. However much you love your spouse, and you better, you're commanded to, love for Christ must and will supersede. What is the mark of a disciple? Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus said, He who loves father, mother, sister, brother, wife, husband, is not worthy. love of our life in heaven will not be the spouse of this earth but the bride marrying the groom the Lord Jesus Christ and that's something to keep in mind secondly let us learn that God's enablement to live for him exceeds what we expect have you ever concluded that what God asks of you or expects of you is just a little too much. 
It's beyond your desires or capabilities, and you do not see how you can pull it off. This is especially true as we age. Abraham, by the time of our text, is a very old man, even by the biblical standards of his day. Verse 8 says, He died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Now this triplet, old age, old man, full of years, is meant to drive home the point that, humanly speaking, he had come to the end of his days, the end of his strength, the end of his life. And verse 8 says he breathed his last. Old, 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 you old man, you. What's left for you? Breathing your last. But, but, before he died, he remarried, and with Keturah he sired six more sons, from which came six more nations. And if you add the grandchildren on and so on and so forth, though, it gets to be multiplying pretty fast here, thus being used as God's instrument of fulfilled prophecy that through Abraham nations and kings would come. This tells us that while it was true that Abraham's procreative ability was dead, God's enablement was no meager rejuvenation of his virility to produce just one descendant, namely Isaac, but rather an enablement which sired six more generations of descendants 50 years into the future. Isn't that like our God? That's like our God. You ask for daily bread and he gives you steak and wine. You seek for wisdom as in the case of Solomon. You become the richest king in silver and gold and wealth that the world has ever you ask for strength, as did Samson. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Remember, they had blinded him. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple of Dagon stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all of his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Judges 16, verse 28. Whatever we pray, God has more for you in store than what your prayers are. Saul's prayer for the Ephesian church is a prayer that transcends time and it challenges us in our day. He says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the saints to grasp, to grasp what? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it is worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 17 through 20. Wow, what a tremendous prayer. 
What I'm saying here is we need to learn that God's enablement to live for Him exceeds our expectations. So when we pray, we ought to ask believing. Your puny little prayer request, God has so much more in store for you. You pray this, and He gets you this. You pray this, He opens the windows of heaven and pours down showers of blessing. Thirdly, we can learn that God's godly ancestors are no guarantee. Listen, young people. Godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring. Look at verse 2. Among the sons which godly Abraham fathered with Keturah, we read the name Midian. Midian. The Midianites pop up on the pages of Scripture time and again as the enemies of God and his people. It was to Midianite merchants that Joseph's brothers sold him, and they proceeded to transport him to Egypt, where they in turn sold him to Potiphar. Genesis 38, verse 28, verse 38. It was the Midianite authorities who conspired together with those of Moab to hire Balaam to curse Israel. Numbers 22, verse 7. It was a Midianite woman who seduced an Israelite man in the worship of Baal. And when this was known openly, God sent a plague that killed 24,000 of the Israelites because of that sin. Until Phinehas, Aaron's son, speared them both to death in Numbers 25, verse 6. In the days of the judges, God punished Israel for its evil by settling the Midianites over them. And we read, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Judges 6, verse 7. And Gideon became the champion sent by God to deliver them. The lesson to take to heart here is especially important for all who were raised in the Christian faith. And it is this. You may have godly grandparents, but that doesn't mean you are godly. You may have Christian parents, but that doesn't make you a Christian. The biblical histories are full of Hophni and Phinehas, of Nadabs and Abihus, sons of priests, of Absaloms and Adonijahs, who had godly rulers for a father, of Esau's, who lived an immoral and profane life, though they had Christian parents. And now here, in the family of Abraham, the friend of God, there is Midian, whose legacy is one of brutality and idolatry, death and destruction towards Israel, and who, in the end, God destroyed through Moses. You can read about it in Numbers 31. As a people, the Midianites became enemies of the people of God. Now, it need not be that way. Say, what do you mean? Moses' sanctuary, when he fled from the wrath of Pharaoh, was among, hello, the Midianites. Really? In Raoul's house, who in time gave Zipporah his daughter to become Moses' wife. Whoa! Exodus 2, verse 18. Raoul means, his name means, the friend He later was named Jethro, chapter 3, verse 1, who gave godly counsel to Moses after the exodus on how to distribute the burden of rule among 
qualified men because he was wearing himself out with everybody that was coming to him with all of their problems. We have the establishment of the elders, Genesis 18. So what I'm saying is because you were born into an unbelieving and pagan family does not mean that you are locked into their sin and unbelief. Because your brother is not a believer doesn't mean you will never become a believer. Because your sister is not a believer doesn't mean that you are doomed to the same state. Each man, each woman, each boy, each girl stands before God accountable for their own choices in life. And the gospel call comes to one and all regardless of race, regardless of culture, family background and upbringing. And it says to you, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live, Ezekiel 18, verse 31, verse 32. Jesus makes this promise to you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never, never drive away. John 6, verse 37. So the lesson here is godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring, but you're not locked into your pagan past. Christ invites you to become part of his family. Number four, we need to learn that righteous actions predicated on God's word do not, do not become obsolete. If you listen to the philosophers and false teachers of our day, you will succumb to the relativity of wicked thinking, wherein truth is colored gray, so that there's no longer a clear demarcation between black and white, between right and wrong, or between good and evil. That's our society. That's where we're living. Everything becomes blurred, and people muddy through life like in a fog, not sure which paths to take and which to avoid. And it's nothing new. It's nothing new. Isaiah describes Israel in his day. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but they deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up the straw and dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord God Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 5, verse 23-24. Observe how these people had arrived at this topsy-turvy, upside-down world where evil was now considered good and good evil. What does it say? They had rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 5 verse 24. In other words, they set aside God's word as the rule for their life. And they opted for their own ingenuity instead. Not so with Abraham. God had instructed him to send Ishmael away from the homestead in compliance with Sarah's wisdom that he not share in Isaac's inheritance. 
Now more than 50 years later, God's word is still truth. It's still reliable. It's still to be followed. And so what? Keturah's sons must go away, for they, like Ishmael, were not recipients of God's promise. Righteous actions grounded in God's word do not become obsolete. If it's truth today, it will be truth tomorrow. Here he is, 50 years later, and he's still remembering, you know, I had to send Ishmael away. God said, yeah, Sarah's right, send him away. But your inheritance is not in him. I got all these sons, six more sons, and they're growing families. What am I going to do with them? Well, the estate goes to Isaac. Okay, you guys, you got to go. Got to hit the door. He gave him gifts, and he sent them away. And they went. God's word is truth in the days of Abraham, and now thousands of years later. It's still the truth, the whole truth, so help us God. We preachers are held accountable for preaching the truth of God's word, even if it's not popular, even if it doesn't say all happy and giddy things. And then is a final truth to take to heart from this text is this. Jesus is the sweet aroma that wings our prayers to the throne of God for answers. Symbolically, Keturah may be the specially perfumed incense whose aroma rises in intercession to God when God's people gather for worship and prayer. But Jesus is called the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1, whose intercession before God sweetens every request. For Jesus could say of his prayers to God the Father, I know that you always hear me. John 11, verse 42. And the Apostle John extrapolated from that in 1 John 5, verse 15. And if we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Jesus gave His disciples this promise, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 14, verse 13. Now, Paul explained the theology of that promise, and here's what he said. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given in its proper time. What's a mediator? Well, it's a go-between. Someone that stands between you and another person. And Jesus is said to be the mediator between mankind and God. And then Jesus encourages, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, 
and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Luke 11, verse 9 and 10. But James exposes the naked truth about us, saying, You want something, but you don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel, you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James 4, verse 2 and 3. So he lists two problems in our prayer life here. Number one, firstly, prayerlessness. That'll keep the windows of heaven closed and locked to any blessing from God. And secondly, so will praying with wrong motives. Praying to satisfy your lust, your greed, your jealousy, your anger, whatever. So praise God, Jesus our mediator comes to our aid by his spirit, of whom Paul writes, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 26 through 20. Now just think about it. Jesus pleading our case before God. Nothing asked in selfishness. Nothing sinful is asked. Nothing prideful. Nothing outside of the righteous will of God. Just a sweet perfume wafting into the nostrils of God, resulting in his smile and blessing upon us. And I say, hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Who prays that way for us when we know not how. Your prayers get to glory, folks. Maybe not the way you verse them, but they get to glory the way Christ interprets them and speaks for them before the Father. A lot of truth here that needs to sink into our hearts. These Old Testament guys, boy, what a blessing to study their lives. Abraham dies an old man, but he dies in his youth. And he dies still believing and still trusting and still obeying. Father, we thank you for your word today and ask your blessing upon it. Wonderful lessons here. Jesus, you being that sweet aroma, that sweet perfume that <clears throat> is the epitome of righteous prayers before God. When we pray lustfully or we pray selfishly or we pray for things that unwittingly are opposed to the will of God. 
It's like our prayers go through a translation. And you're the translator. By your spirit, you phrase those requests in ways that are complementary to the will of God. And that are righteous requests, not sinful. You answer those things that will bring you glory and us good. And I'm thankful, and all of us need to be thankful, that we have a mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. Many here outside of Jesus who are offering prayers of selfishness, they're offering prayers of anger, get even, or any of that kind of thing that goes on in the hearts of wicked men. Bring them up shore today and help them to see that those kind of prayers don't reach glory. God doesn't answer prayers of sin. But if we are believers and we pray in a sinful way, God has an emollient, a perfumed salve that he puts on those things. Makes them pleasant to smell and to answer in the heart of God. Sweet aroma. Forgive us, Lord, when we pray amiss, when we, uh, we get cranky, when we get sinful in our thoughts. Help us to pray like you pray, thy will be done. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to love you to the very end. Help us to be like Abraham and rest our case on your word. Help us to be light and salt to the watching world, especially to our relatives and friends, because they're watching. May they see the love of Christ in our lives and in our words. May they hear the love of Christ. We ask this for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, with thanksgiving. Amen. Closing him once again from Trinity.